Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with the greatest gift imaginable. Free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to get eight exclusive craft beers from around the world for free. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. I'm sure you'll have figured it out, but it's best to be clear. And cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that, political party listeners get two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small-batch breweries the earth has to offer, and they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. Previous themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom, there's no lock-in, and you can leave at any time. Your first box will be sent to you the very next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme of the box and the individual beers. Plus, you also receive a tasty snack just to top it all off. The box I got has been a godsend to me these last couple of weeks. Some of the beers are incredible. They sent me one called the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Porter, which was unlike anything I'd ever tasted, and a Mango IPA. I mean, I've never, tried, I've never tried beer like it. Um, and it, it, you can tailor it to your taste, basically. If you don't like dark beers, you choose the light plan. And obviously, if you like light beers, you choose the light one. It's so easy, even I figured it out. Just go to www.beer52.com party to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, political party customers get an extra two unmissable beers for free. That's beer52.com party. Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope whatever situation you find yourself in today, you're managing to keep yourself positive, keep your pecker up, and I hope that uh, this podcast can help you uh, while away an hour. And uh, today's podcast, really so helpful. I'm joined by the fantastic Jason Leach, who's the National Clinical Director of Healthcare Quality and Strategy for the Scottish Government. He is at the centre of the advice being given to the politicians and the leaders in Scotland and to the advice being given to the public and as a result helping inform our response across the UK and around the world. So this is a brilliant insight into how they try and contain the virus, how they try and inform the public, the relationship between the advisors and the politicians, the relationship between the Scottish Government and the UK Government. I should, no spoilers, but I'll tell you this at the start, 
this interview is hugely reassuring. Um, it doesn't distract at all, I don't think, from uh, or, or take away from how severe the virus is. But just knowing that Jason and his colleagues and people like them are putting themselves at the service of not just the government, of society, is hugely reassuring. And the insights he gives us are reassuring. And just his expertise and the way he is, is uh, I felt so much better having spoken to him. Uh, and I, I, I can't obviously speak for you or how you will feel listening to it, but as someone who is shielding, as someone who's worried about getting it, but is an optimist and uh, is looking on the bright side, I just found this hugely reassuring. So uh, I began by asking Jason, a very long job title, what the role of the National Clinical Director of Healthcare Quality and Strategy to the Government of uh, Scotland involves. Well, if I didn't know what it was before this pandemic, I certainly don't know what it is now, Matt, honestly. (laughs) The First Minister said uh, a couple of weeks ago, if your life hasn't changed, you have misunderstood the pandemic. And I can tell you something, mine has changed. So my, my, I was a dentist a long time ago. Then I trained as an oral surgeon, which is a surgery around the mouth, so cancer or trauma, getting hit in Glasgow streets. I did that for years. And then, helpfully now, it appears, I did a public health degree. So I did that in the States, and I ended up with a combination of surgery, so the individual clinician, plus the public health knowledge, the that's quite useful when you're hit with a global pandemic and you're in a senior government position. So my proper job is around the quality and safety of the health and social care system. So the safety program, the person-centered care work, the visiting work, all all kinds of things around the normal system. And now I'm still doing that around how we deal with this pandemic safely. But I've also, whether the public or my mother like it or not, I've become a little bit of the face of it. So trying to not do the politics, so the politicians do the politics, and I and other senior clinicians and scientists have tried to uh, translate that a little bit for the public. That's, that's been my, my role. Whether, whether I'm successful or not, the likes of you will have to choose. <laughs> well, what were you working on before this pandemic hit? What was your workload? It, it was mainly around improving the health and social care system, both here and around the world. So my passion is to change the way we make health and healthcare better. So the population health, so obesity and smoking and drinking and all of that, but also how we get rid of infection from our hospitals, how we make the system better for those who are getting hip replacements or those who are having going to their GP. So my my the people who work with me are all about that making it better. So the people, for instance, the people who run Scotland's cancer care work in my directorate. So we have 130 million, we spend it on cancer improvement here or here, we give some to Macmillan. We get, so conventional improvement work that you would, you would hope is ongoing in a health system of our size. So, that, so that's what I did every day when I woke up and tried to do my best to, to make it better for patients and families. My, 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 honestly, my value system is about making it better for patients and families, both for my parents, your parents, everybody's auntie, and, and that, that same set of values applies now. I mean, I've got an uncle who's in a hospital with COVID. This, this, virus, this virus is close to home for all of us, and it's going to get closer to home over the next few weeks. So it's not abstract, Matt. It's not something, it's not a textbook thing. It's real. And when did it first emerge on your radar? I mean, there's been a view, it seems, 
I guess, across governments around the world, that at some point we were going to deal with a pandemic of some sort. Um, and there's old videos of Obama and Bill Gates and various other people. I'm sure you'll have given speeches on it in the last few years. Um, so it felt like the world health professionals were aware that this could happen. But when did the severity of this really land on your desk and you first start to realise we're in a different situation? So it's, it's amazing how fast things have moved. So on Thursday of last week, the WHO announced we were 100 days into the pandemic. I honestly couldn't believe when they said that. I said, no, it can't, it can't be 100 days. It, it feels like a year. Yeah. So, so we, are, we are, the people who caught this virus, to illustrate it, people who caught this virus who were pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic haven't had their babies yet. I mean, this pandemic is young. Yes. Really, really young. So I knew, along with all of my colleagues, that pandemics were a, the two things that healthcare workers, healthcare leaders have worried about in the world are antibiotic resistance. So we're really worried that bacterial infections, we won't be able to treat them in the future because of an- antibiotics. And the second, the second risk on all of our registers was a global pandemic. We didn't know what would happen this January, February and March, but we knew it was a possibility. So I always knew it was coming, I didn't think I would be the national clinical director of a country when it came, if I'm totally honest. And I'm not, I'm not sure I would have chosen if I'd known. But the, the, the way we run the health service, particularly in the UK countries, I think is really helpful for us. We know each, I know all the chief executives by name. We have a pretty, we have a pretty close group of people who run these things. I, I, think, I think we've done pretty well up to this point, considering we've only had it for three months. So given... This view that a pandemic was was coming at some point, what is it that makes you realise that? Is that because of uh, the global travel and the connectivity of countries, or is it other things? What were the what were the what is the sort of uh, perfect storm for a pandemic, and what made you realise that at some point this was coming? So we've had thirteen in the last hundred years. So the the one that everybody talks about is Spanish flu in the early nineteen hundreds which killed mil- millions across the world. And the, the big, the number you learn at school is that it killed more than the First World War. It actually, in the UK, it, it didn't kill that many because I've had to look back. It killed a few ten, tens of thousands. It didn't kill it, millions of people across the UK. But the, the interesting thing is that as each pandemic has come, the world is, of course, different. There weren't, e- EasyJet and Ryanair and cheap Chinese airlines didn't exist in 1917. So... So the nature of our world is good and bad. So the good thing about that globalization is I think we'll get a vaccine treatment and science quicker because we're all working together and the WHO are holding all of that together. The bad thing, of course, is that an obscure city in the middle of China that you and I had never heard of with 10 million people in it, twice the size of Scotland, one city gets a single virus case and suddenly it's in Switzerland, and then suddenly it's in France, and then suddenly it's in Scotland. And with uh, the implications around Wuhan and wet markets and things, I mean, obviously it's not, people's main priority at the moment is, is not getting the yep. thing, staying alive, treating those that have got it and all the rest of it. In terms of public health, and uh, in a way it, it's quite hard to separate the politics from this, but public health professionals around the world after this are they going to have some role in insisting that places like that can't do the sort of trade they were doing? 
I think there'll be uh, in the in the outcomes from from this. Let, let's call it the the retrospectoscope. I don't I don't know. There's going to be inquiries all over the world about how Switzerland did it, and Italy did it, and New Zealand did it, and Scotland did it. And I'll I'll, I'll play my part. I have no doubt in some of that learning. And I think the learning will fall into three big boxes. There'll be the prevention bit that you've just described. So how do we how do we get better at this not happening? Then. If, if we can't be 100% sure it can't happen, and I don't think we will, I think we could get better at that. Then we'll have to think about how we managed it. So what, what, what worked best? And that won't be blame. It won't be that you're better than me, or it'll be, I hope, trying to learn about how we manage these things better. And then the third thing, the thing I'm, the thing I'm most concerned about now that we're in the middle of it, is what do we do after it? So, so you can't just suddenly let all the pubs and restaurants back. But what about the domestic violence? What about the mental illness? What about the respiratory disease that we're storing up now? Because this virus, if it doesn't kill you, this virus hurts you. So, so it's, not, it's not you die or not. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a continuum of this disease. So people are going to be left, I think. We don't, we don't know because the virus is young, but we think people will be left with respiratory disease. So how do we, how do we deal with that third thing, which is the post-viral treatment? And I, I think when we look at the post-mortem of all of this pandemic around the world, that those are the things we'll have to learn from. You said earlier that it, there, were, there were the two things you're concerned about. One was uh, the, the, the role that antibiotics might play in basically removes, reduced immunity in the future and the pandemic. Is it fair to say you thought the antibiotics one was going to come first and that was going to be a bigger problem? Yeah, it's a good question. I, so we've certainly been very concerned about antibiotic uh, resistance. The thing about antibiotic resistance is it's a slow burn. It, it, it's not going to happen immediately. The pandemic was, I think we can all agree now, not a slow burn. It, it hit the world fast and hard. The, the WHO have also been very concerned about the antibiotic resistance thing, but we've struggled to get people to pay attention to it because, because it takes such a long time and it affects a smaller number of people. But if we run out of penicillin, or we won't run out of penicillin, if penicillin stops working, then suddenly people will pay attention. A pandemic is a different public health challenge because it happened, in epidemiology terms, it happened overnight. We literally happened overnight. And, we, and we, everybody had to mobilize really quickly, try and get the knowledge we could about the, the virus itself, the treatment for the virus, all, all of those things in place. I mean, I guess I ask out of a slight personal concern. I've had recurrent chest problems over the last few years. I've asthma, but I've had infections that required multiple cases of steroids and antibiotics. Yeah. And yeah. largely because of the government information stuff around uh, overuse of antibiotics on TV, I'm slightly nervous that in the long run, I've made myself kind of immune to any serious medication I might need. On top of that, I'm shielding because of this. Um, yeah. virus so uh, people might think well the pandemic's happened and then on top of that people who have reduced chest capacity or, or, or any sort of lung complaint as a result of this might then be hit by a second crisis which is they don't respond to treatment so the so i can reassure you and not reassure you in almost the same <laughs> way. antibiotic resistance tends not to be about individual resistance so it's not oh. that you take so many antibiotics that they stop working for you what, what the challenge is at a public health, and this is the difference between health and public health, 
So your antibiotic will still work for you if, 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 it, if it works. Yeah. The difficulty is that the bug is changing. So the bug becomes nastier and the antibiotics stop working for everybody, not, not for you. So you won't be antibiotic resistance. The right. bug will be antibiotic resistance. So it's about the collective effect. It's not about, Correct. it's not as if, so for instance, take something like amoxicillin. Yep. If I was to use that three or four times a year, do I build up any, does nope. that become less effective? That's always well, effective. It's always effective if the bug is susceptible. Yes. So the bug that you get is the same bug I get. And if, if amoxicillin works for it, it works for both of us. doesn't matter you've had it before. What matters is whether the bug is susceptible. And the challenge with antibiotic resistance is the more antibiotics we use in the world, in veterinary medicine, in human medicine, in agriculture, everywhere, the bugs are smart, unfortunately. And the yeah. bugs mutate because the, the ones that survive resist the antibiotics, so they, they survive and we get resistant bugs. So now we've got, that's what MRSA is. MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. So it's a penicillin-resistant bug. So if, if we can't kill that with antibiotic number 20, yeah. because there's not an antibiotic 21, we're stuffed. I actually got MRSA last year. <laughs> I got it, I, well, I got it at a skin level. It was a very rare yeah. thing. I had... Um... A really bad X from my hands. I basically got MRSA of the skin. I mean, this and is making it you, sound like I'm at death's door. And they gave you a they gave you a, a a higher level of antibiotic to deal with it. Yes. But if you get so, what we usually give for MRSA is a bit technical. Is a drug called vancomycin. If if you have VRSA, vancomycin resistant bugs, we've got nothing else. So so that so that so that's very rare just now. But that's what. And we worry about it because gradually it gets worse and worse. Well, Nothing to do with the va despite what Mr. Trump said earlier in the week. I should avoid politics, but despite what Mr. Trump said earlier in the week, he said the virus is so clever it can avoid the antibiotics. That unfortunately is true of all viruses, not just this one. <laughs> so he was kind of true. It was often he is. Often that <laughs> if you scrape far enough, there is a level of truth within there. <laughs> I've realised this is starting to sound like I'm just having a personal consultation about my own. It's a hundred quid. A, it's a hundred quid an hour for personal consultations. I do the podcast for free. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Well, hopefully, this will generate some business for you. Um, I suppose you'd already touched on this, but I saw you talk about this earlier about the balancing of the three harms: the harm from the virus, the harm from the diseases we're unable to treat if the NHS becomes yep. overwhelmed, but the harm from the countermeasures as well. And you mentioned that mental health, domestic violence. At what point? Does the balance change? That's a really important question and, and one that I can't give you a specific answer for. I can tell you what we're looking for. So, and it's, it's relatively predictable if, you, if you've paid attention. So, so what we wanted to do was we want, wanted to reduce the spike of cases so that the intensive care units didn't look like they looked in Lombardy in Northern Italy. If you remember four weeks ago, everybody, everything on the telly was about intensive care being overwhelmed. So what we have done is introduced these countermeasures at a point at which we believed it's a, I mean, it's not an exact science. We believed we could reduce the spike from Ben Nevis to Arthur's seat, which is what, what I've kind of been calling it for the Scottish crowd. So we want a, a more sustained level of viral infection. So intensive care managers. Now it would appear 
early days, it would appear that we have managed that. We've had to, at the same time, adjust the health service. So the health service has doubled and then trebled its intensive care capacity. So we're already at over 200 cases in intensive care in Scotland, which is beyond our normal intensive care capacity. So we had to also adjust the health service while reducing the curve. Now, when we reach the down of the curve, which will not be on a single day, then we will start to think, okay, what, what can we now do safely that will still protect the vulnerable, like my 79-year-old parents, with one of whom has COPD, a chest condition, so what can we do for, for them that will still protect them, but that we can get the economy moving, we can get the kids back, we can get... Now, that's not going to happen quickly, and it's not going to happen all at the same time. So we sh the shielding letters we sent out to 160,000 people, they said three months. We didn't choose three months randomly. We're thinking that they will need to be in their houses for at least three months, not less, maybe more. So, so that, that exit strategy becomes a, as important as the, it, the entrance strategy that we had on the other side. It's tough. It's really tough. I hate saying it out loud. It is, but it's, it's important for people to know. It, you've, you're far better off delivering that difficult message. I mean, in your experience of being one of the faces of this, <laughs> not in terms of the virus, but in terms of mitigating, <laughs> mitigating the effects of it, um, what in your, and I realise this is an experience really only of the last few weeks, but do you have any insight yet as to what messages work best with the public? So I, it's really interesting. I've had to learn a lot about, uh, uh, quickly, about media and reach and demographics and what, it turns out not everybody listens to the Today programme and watches Channel 4 News. It was a huge shock to me that, that the rest of the population don't take news in the same way I do. So, so I did... I did 90 minutes on the, on the breakfast shows across Scotland, on Clyde and Forth and West FM and all these radio stations. And, and it turns out they get 600,000 listeners across the whole of Scotland on a Friday morning. I mean, that's, that's more than a tenth of the population. So, and if you, if you watch TV ads at certain points in the day, you get a different demographic. So I, I think the messaging it has to be really straightforward for all demographics. But then the trick which behavioral people and media people have helped me understand is how to get that message to you in your yes. demographic and my parents. And so the FM and I did a Q&A for young teenagers who have a slightly different set of perspectives. So they're they are more scared, but they want to do more good. So they're desperate to help their grandparents. So if you can reassure them that probably they would recover from the disease as young people, but there's lots they can do for their grandparents or their aunts and uncles or their carers or whatever. You can, you can start to adjust your messaging in such a way that each age group does it. But the stay at home, stay safe, the best protection is your front door, that messaging just needs to go to the whole population everywhere at the one time. And that, that, that seems to be getting through as far as we can tell. Well, people already know the phrase, don't they? Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Like that has become yep. a kind of mantra for yep. a lot of people. Yep. And that message is getting through. But do you think, it's not so much scaring people, but do you think people need to be aware of how severe it is? Or, I mean, you can tell that different politicians and different organs have different instincts. You can sense that maybe 
and I don't want to draw you on the politics because I know you're, you're, you're apolitical in your role, but for instance, some might say, well, conservatives might prefer a kind of laissez-faire, you try and nudge people along, and other people might prefer a more direct route. And obviously there'll be people within the Conservative Party that, that have those opposing views, yeah. but do you think sometimes it is better to scare people a bit? I think it's a real balance. I, 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 the the behavioural... So we've got clinical scientists, public health people, me, others... But we've also got behavioural scientists telling us and advising us about what the messaging should look like, how it should read, how it should... And, and there, is a, there is a level at which a week ago or two weeks ago when we're saying, look, folks, stay at home. This unequivocal. We need to save people's lives. So, so that has to be pretty strong. And you heard the First Minister with a serious face say, people will die. So that's a pretty tough message for a leader of a country to, yes. to say out loud. There are then new, more nuanced messages in there where you might say, thank you so much for staying at home over the Easter weekend. We could not be more grateful. I really hope you have a really happy and peaceful Easter. That, that message is the same, but it is slightly nuanced. To, and I, I think at the right time, you can start to balance those two things. You, you, sh you should understand how serious this illness is. So the BBC doing a piece in intensive care with doctors and nurses who are looking after sick people, I think is really important. But it's important to balance it with the clap for carers on a Thursday night and the 98-year-old who got discharged from Nine Wells Hospital so that people realise you get out of this disease more often than not. So I, 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 balance is hard to strike, particularly for somebody like me. My, my instinct is to be lighter and to be more extrovert, but sometimes the, the serious face is, is what the messaging needs. But you've been able to do some of the lighter and more extrovert stuff on social media, I suppose, for different audiences with the, you know, when you're drawing the charts and stuff, they've been yeah. really good and really accessible. I mean, do you think, I mean, Chris Whitty hasn't done stuff like that. Now, maybe that's just because Chris Whitty is a, a different type of bloke. Do you think there is an element of if you're working for the Scottish government, you, you can be a bit more informal than if you were working for, say, the UK government? I think it's probably about the individual. It's also about the politicians giving permission. So I, so I work for the chief executive of the National Health Service, who's my boss, the guy who pays my wages, who I have to go see every month and see how I'm doing. And he's a chief executive, a, a big chief executive from a health system. Uh, and uh, he, runs, he runs the National Health Service and the social care system. But I also have a dotted line to the politicians. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be on your show or in the media, if the First Minister didn't decide this messaging was important to share. She, yes. she, she decides, because she's the decision maker. That's, that's the right thing. If I wasn't employed by the Scottish Government, and I thought I was just a random uh, amateur epidemiologist, I could still be on your programme, but I would, I would be deciding, and the messaging would be, would, would be slightly different. So we, we spoke quite early on, the Cabinet Secretary and I, and the, the other senior uh, health advisors about the messaging and how the politicians should of course be prominent and of course front up the big press conferences but there was also a role when we're talking to the hospice movement or if we're talking to the young people of Scotland or if we're talking to the the footballers of Scotland that where where that messaging would have to be slightly different and then I, I'm not the right person for all of that so I'm I'm not a big Instagram influencer <laughs> you know it turns, out, it turns out that if you get Gary tank commander to do a message on staying at home, or Doctor Who to do a message about staying at home, they reach another demographic. So that, that seems to me to be really important. I, I'm not precious about who shares the message, 
I'm precious about saving the lives and protecting the National Health Service. You need to get Limmy involved. He, I think he has been. No way. I, I, I haven't looked at it. But somebody sent me something that said he was. And then there was, there was Lewis Capaldi who worried me a little bit. He could go, he could go off message. That was my yeah. concern. But, the, but a number of celebrities have done it really, really well. And they, 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 have a, they have a set of followers who probably, I don't know your follower list, Matt. I haven't looked, but certainly they have a different follower list from me. So, so that, seems, that seems important to, to, try and get, to try and get each of those demographics with the same messaging. And what's the interaction like between the Scottish government and the UK government? Because at the, at the moment, it seems that broadly they're on the same page and have the same messaging and uh, the same approach that it's science led, trying to flatten the curve, all this stuff. The messages seem to be similar. Um, I mean, firstly, just on the, on the relationship of information sharing and, and keeping each other updated. Do so those the, relationships work well? Yeah, they work, they work really well. The, the clinical groupings the scientists and the clinicians me and a, and a group of others they they we we speak twi- twice a week in the evenings which is hard but <laughs> twice a week with the the chief medical officers of the four countries the clinical directors of the countries the chief nurses we come together and we talk exactly what you'd expect us to talk about care homes ppe testing i mean you could write the you could write the agenda yourself about all of the things that are that are prominent and we're trying to we're trying to fix data, how to protect the population, all of that. And that, that's been very consensual. It, it's, there hasn't been much departure. Some of it is unknown, of course. These, yeah. it's, not, it's not straightforward. It's, it's, it's really difficult. And the health systems look a bit different. So England is much more spread out, much bigger. They have less control levers. So they don't have all the chief executives' phone numbers on their phones. I, I only have 14 chief executives of of territorial health boards, so I so I can get to them easier, as can my colleagues. The political level, I, I'm not in all of those conversations by any means, and nor should nor should I be. The ones I am in eh, have been actually very consensual. They've been robust. They have been inquiring of us, of the scientists and the advisors, but they've been in the main, I think, really good. Now I think over time there will be some differences develop in the way the countries come out of the curve. I don't know what that will look like, but you can imagine a world in which Orkney might do something slightly different from Suckett Hall Street yeah. or from Oxford Street and at a slightly different time. But just now, the, the, the crucial harm we're trying to reduce is harm from coronavirus. And therefore, the simplistic message across all four countries was to do the same thing. And that seemed to me to be the right choice. But there's no divergence on the science. You don't have people saying, whoa, 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 we don't agree with that. Well, you know, where's your data for this sort of thing? Only on Twitter. <laughs> but that's true that's true at any point on any debate well, i suppose there is there is challenge of the science so so the first minister uh, the three first ministers and the prime minister and their and their cabinets challenge the science so so they are they are quite rightly holding the science to account yes. and w- w- which i think is the right thing to do and i, I am too so when the when the health protection people come to me and say this about blood transfusion or this about how the virus is behaving genetically or so so of course the science is not exact every day so so we have to we have to test that with what the who scientists are saying we have to test it with what we're seeing in south korea in new zealand and japan and other countries I, I spent some of my time over the weekend i have a lot of colleagues in scandinavia who i work with in my proper job so i phoned around scandinavia to see what was 
to see what they were doing that was different from us. So of course we should question what we're doing. So it shouldn't be a five-minute call with the First Minister and she says, thank you very much, Jace. That's uh, Thanks for the advice. I'll do exactly what you tell me. Trust me, it's not remotely like that. She's, she, she's, she's very smart and incisive, as are the other politicians I've been involved with in this process, including the Health Minister asking every day. We were on a call with her this morning about care homes, and that, those are tough conversations about how, how we're managing that virus inside those institutions. And with handling different ge- geographic areas, so it, it's not ludicrous to imagine that, say, in three months' time, the Scottish government has a slightly different approach to, to the UK government, whether it's in allowing people out earlier or whatever. Yeah. What about within Scotland? And you, you mentioned Orkney and Sucky Hole Street. Would it be possible or advisable to say, well, actually, in Glasgow, we're going to keep people locked down, but in Shetland, you don't have to, that doesn't apply anymore? I think there's a number of elements of, of that question. I, I think you, you could create a system in which you, you make the countermeasures adjustable by area. You could also make them adjustable by grouping. So young people or those with, those with pre-existing conditions. So your, your asthma, you might need protected for longer than me or the 20-year-olds or the 20 to 30-year-olds. The, the challenge with, with, with splitting in any, in any uh, way, regionally or by disease or age, is that the messaging now gets much harder. Mm. So, so what we need on the way out is, is testing to do a different job for us than the testing we have just now. So we will almost certainly go back to a world where the viruses, there are, there are less cases, but we will contact trace those cases again. If you remember on the way in, we found the cases that had been skiing in Northern Italy. They came back to Scotland. We found them, we tested them, and then we contact traced those who they had met, and we locked all of those people away in their houses. Now, that, you can't do that forever. We're, we've got too many now to, for that to be meaningful. But on the way out, we might bring that back. So you could imagine a world in which the test is more reliable and better, and you contact trace the individuals. So a new case, we keep the social distancing in place. We let some businesses go back. We maybe let some who are low risk go back. And then over time, you gradually reduce the countermeasures. The, the other thing I'd add in there is we don't know what this virus is going to do over time. We've only had it 100 days. So the flu virus has disappeared. It's seasonal. So we had it over the winter. And now there's no flu left in the country. There's almost none. So we don't know what this virus will do in July or August or September. So it may be that the nature of the virus changes as well as what we do with the countermeasures. So the science will help us with that while we get treatment, vaccine, and testing. And how far away do you think a vaccine is? It, it, the, the estimates vary. None of them are good. All of the estimates, all of the estimates take us at least to the end of the year, probably into the first quarter of next year. I do know that the scientists are working at a rate and a global connection that's never been seen before. There's more money, more labs, and more collaboration than than I've ever known. And it's private and public sector together. It's exactly what you would want. And it's it's happening in New Zealand and Scotland and Edinburgh and and all over the world. And the WHO are crucial to that because they, they represent 194 countries and they know that the vaccine is as required, if not more required, in Somalia than it is in Liverpool. So where the health services are broken, 
this virus is going to be so much worse than it is where people have health services. So that vaccine can't come fast enough. Every country's got its own curve for a number of reasons, whether it's the, the geographic, the demographic, the, the reactions of governments and, and services. Yeah. Uh, Sir Jeremy Farrer, director of the Wellcome Trust, said that the UK may be one of the worst, if not the worst affected country in Europe. Would that be entirely down to the government response or are there demographic factors here that, that might be to blame? I think when the history is written, Matt, we'll, we'll look back on each of those elements. You, you can... You could almost write the, the, the report now with the paragraphs you would need. You couldn't write the words yet. But I, I think there will be something about response and what each, each country did. But, it, but there will then also be a paragraph about what happened when you removed the response and what the response did. Because as you described earlier, there, there's not just harm from coronavirus. There's harm from the lockdown measures. They, they're not, they're not, there is no easy path here. There isn't a nice, gentle path where the businesses don't close, unemployment doesn't rise, and, and people lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods. So I can see boarded up businesses around where I live. That, that's, that's hard to, I don't know if those businesses will come back. So that's, that's pretty tough. There'll then be paragraphs about what, what each health service did to ramp up care. So what was that like in Northern Italy? What was it like in Spain? What was it like in Scotland and Wales? And, and then there'll be how, how we manage the, the business and economic fallout from a, what is going to be a global recession on a scale that I don't think any of us have ever seen in our living memory. Just on testing, it feels like it's taken quite a while for the UK to, to be able to test in, in large numbers, and we're still not there yet. What is the cause of that delay? So let's think about what that testing does. So there's a, it's become a little bit iconic, the testing question. Testing, so I, let's say I'm in a house where I am the key worker and somebody in my house has symptoms. So yes, we want me back at work. So let's test me. Let's say my wife has symptoms, she's got COVID, now we test me today, Monday. That t I get that test back tomorrow, Tuesday. That told you, negative, I'm, I'm disease-free. It told you I'm disease-free on the Monday, not on the Tuesday. Mm. And it tells you nothing about Wednesday. So it, it helps, but it is not this wonderful panacea that people think it is. It is, a, it is a test of whether you had the virus when they took the swab. It is no more than that. So if I go to work on the Tuesday, let's hope I haven't caught it between getting the swab and going to work on the Tuesday. Now I can't come home because the virus is in my house. So I, I've got to go to a hotel, I've got to do something, or we've got to self-isolate at home in two rooms and stuff. So I, the testing is crucial. And, we, and we've managed to test 8,500 NHS and key workers in Scotland, and a number of them have been able to go back to work. But the implications of that test are misunderstood. So it's much, much harder than people think. The test we actually need, and you knew this was coming, is the antibody test. We need the test that says, I had it, I survived it, and now I'm, I'm immune to it. Now, the science isn't completely there about the immunity thing. Coronaviruses usually lend some months, if not a year, immunity over time. And we're hoping that this one will do the same. And it appears globally as though you can't get it twice. That's not absolutely certain, but the science just now seems to suggest you can't get it twice. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There have been it's fascinating to hear you say that because there seems to be a mild obsession with testing. You can sort of understand why. Yeah. But obviously, it's not. It's like you say. It's 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 how you use those tests is crucial, and that isn't necessarily the way out of the problem. The other thing, Matt, is remember, there's no treatment. So so people think get COVID, get a tablet, get rid of COVID. That yeah. that's not how this disease works. We can't treat it. All we can do is support your body to 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 use your own immune system to get rid of it. So that's why the vast majority of people recover. So they get the symptoms. Those symptoms are likely now COVID because there's no flu in the country. So if you get those symptoms, you probably have COVID. You stay at home for seven days. You drink lots of water. You rest on your sofa. You watch Game of Thrones and you get better. And like having a bad flu. And most people, that's, that's it. We're done. If you deteriorate and get breathless, you come into hospital. Now we test you principally because we want to cohort you with other COVID patients. We don't want to put you in a ward with non-COVID patients. But actually the test doesn't help me treat you because I've got no treatment. What I'm doing is putting you in a supportive environment that could eventually lead to ventilation, the ultimate support, and then you will, your immune system, if, if it's good and, and you're, you get out the other end of it, you will recover yourself from the disease. So everything is about supporting the individual to get better. So I, the COVID test doesn't tell me, oh, thank goodness for that. Now I can give you this medicine. It, it doesn't help me with that. And I wish, it, I wish it did, but it doesn't. The other thing testing does for us, though, is help us understand where we are on the curve. So it's very important epidemiologically to know where we are and how many cases there are across the whole population. And that's the other reason why we test. So not that it's a competition, but looking at countries maybe that have a, a flatter curve, <laughs> people are talking about Germany a lot. What have they done that other countries, say like the UK, haven't done? So the, the other point is, is, and we should have said this in the previous answer when you asked about demographics, is every country has a different both demographic and health system. Mm. So the neatest illustration of that is Japan. Japan has lots of tiny hospitals, no big ones. It, it just has developed its health service differently from the one you would recognize here. America, public-private, different split. Lots of people who can't use that building because it's too shiny and they don't have the insurance for that building, and they can use this building over here. So each health service has a different structure, as well as the country, of course, having different demographics. So our country has more inequality than Sweden. So the response in Sweden looks different to ours. 
because their, their society is more equal. So what you do in Germany is about the German demographic, the German infrastructure, the fact the Germans have a very strong publicly owned biomedical science thing, factories that make the chemicals, factories that make the tests. We, have, we haven't had that. We have had to develop that from a standing start where the Germans were ahead of us in testing. I, I don't know if this is true, honestly, and it, but I wonder if Western Europe, in time, we will all have done things slightly differently, slightly different timings, slightly, but when the history is written, I wonder if we will all have achieved roughly the same thing as mm. we've learned. And, and some will have a slightly different infection rates than others. Some will get a second spike, some won't. Some will have had their ICUs overwhelmed, some won't. And each of us are learning as, as we go. And the Germany, the Germany story is really interesting. They appear to now be having an increase in cases. So it's maybe not what it looked like just last Wednesday, but that's how quickly it, that's how quickly it changes. The temptation, I think, from the public, and I think, we, you know, I, I know myself I fall into this trap, is to say, well, Germany's doing better because, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're more effective and they're, they took it more seriously. And, you know, what are we playing at? We didn't take this seriously from the start. And it sounds like from what you're saying, actually, that's not necessarily the case, that, that well, everyone if, in every if, country if is thinking, doing their best to try and deal with it. Yeah, but let's, let's not, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not complacent about that learning. So if there are things to learn from New Zealand, today's country happened to be New Zealand because a number of people have sent me some information that suggests the New Zealand uh, work is, is going very well. When you look at New Zealand, you immediately see a much more spread out demographic. So they don't live in high rise buildings. Mm. They live because uh, they've got a lot of space. They, they live, they live in, a, a, in a much more spread out environment. There's less inequality. There is a very advanced health system like there is, like there is in the UK, but it feels very different. The, 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 the way they could deal with this feels different from the way we could deal with it. But we absolutely want to learn if there are things we can do that aren't about complaining about the past, because that doesn't help me now. I'm happy for you to complain about the past when we get out the other end. But complaining about six weeks ago doesn't help me tonight. But if there are things to learn from now on, that of course is what everybody wants to do, whether you're the chief exec of the German system or the national clinical director of the Scottish system. So there, there are international differences. What about within the UK then? Are there things that are unique to Scotland compared to other parts of the UK or compared to Scotland within the UK? Are there different demographics that make it easier for Scotland to deal with this or, or situations that make it easy for Scotland or contexts that make it easy for Scotland to deal with this or things that make it harder? I think there's mo both, Matt. I think our... Uh, rural and island communities make it make it somewhat easier to be socially distanced, but somewhat more difficult, perhaps, to get a very high-level healthcare to those institutions or yeah. those populations. So we've had to work hard at making sure we can get helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft and all of that to islands off the west coast or other places. The, the other thing that I think Scotland has is Scotland, the history is long written of long-term social inequality, mm. particularly in Glasgow and Lanarkshire and, and West into Dumbartonshire. So, so that feels as though that makes Scotland harder. Probably true in Liverpool and Manchester as well, but there's something special about the West Coast of Scotland that that inequality makes this harder to deal with. It's all very well people 
people shouting on social media or in the in the actual media to say we should have locked down earlier, we should have shut the borders, we should have closed. Most people don't live in three-bedroom detached houses with gardens at the back for their four kids to play with. Some some folk are living with teenage autistic kids who, um, with no outdoor space, they're on the 37th floor of a high-rise. Nobody to deliver their shopping. The thought of the thought of 30 minutes exercise would be a blessed relief for the family situation they're facing and the chaos they're facing. So, so it's really difficult at population level to ask a country to do something because of that enormous variation in how people's people live. Thirty-one percent of Glasgow lives by itself. Thirty-one percent. And how does that compare to other cities? It's it's higher. I don't know the exact numbers, but but Glasgow is special. Glasgow is special on a number what? of levels, of course. It's the of finest course. city in the world, but it's it's also got long-lasting post-industrial poverty. And that make, means people are more likely to live on their own. Yeah, so a lot of broken families, a lot of men who live by themselves, if you imagine, tough old, tough old Glasgow men. And, and before, in my, in my previous job, we did a lot of work on violence. So I, I was a, an oral surgeon, so we did a lot of work on broken jaws. And they, they were often young, young men who, had, who were unemployed, maybe third, fourth generation unemployed, shipyards closed. The, the big industrial uh, factories closed, so so there was no hope. What well, Sir Harry Burns, my great mentor and friend, called hopelessness in a in a community, and I, I think something like COVID nineteen ha- has an effect inside those hopeless communities that it makes it harder for for us to look after those communities because some element of community is lost. Of, of the cases you've had in Scotland, are they grouped around the larger population centres? Have you had any out in the Highlands and the Islands? Yeah, we have. The, the numbers look a little bit like the population numbers. So we haven't got huge numbers, but it, it, it is more common in the more populous areas, just as, exactly as you would predict, just like London went first, because that's where the air travel was, that's where the dense population is. So we've had, we've had cases in every health board. So that includes Shetland, Orkney, and the Western Isles. Shetland came early, actually, because of some travel into the area. So, so remember the initial cases where we contact traces were, were in the main from Spain and Italy, who had gone before us. We, we were never going to be able to stop that completely. So it was inevitable with global travel that that was going to happen, and nobody was to blame for bringing it in. But Shetland had a little cluster because of some travel from ski resorts in the, in the north of Italy. There seems to be another couple of things um, about the virus and who it's more likely to affect. It seems to affect men more. Why is that? So in Scotland, our numbers so far are, are 55% men and 45% women. So we're not... See, but not we're another 45-55 split in Scotland, Jason. Yeah, quite, exactly. <laughs> I thought you would like that. The, but the, the reality is we don't have enough numbers, to be sure. But the Chinese numbers are enormously uh, moving towards men getting it more often and more men dying. There's only theory just now in the science about what that might be. It might be smoking. So smoking rates are higher, particularly in China and Korea, amongst men than women. And anything that, anything that makes your lungs less likely to recover from this, remember, no treatment. We've got, to be able to, we've got to be able to support you to get over it. If your lungs can't do it, you're much more at risk. So it might be smoking. We, we don't think coronaviruses in, in the past have not made a gender distinction. 
So there's no reason to believe this virus is somehow affecting one gender more than the other. It's much more likely to be something about that gender's behaviour that's causing the coronavirus to, to be different. What about in the UK? And I'm not sure if this is global, but in the UK, there seems to be a view that it disproportionately affects black and minority ethnic communities. Yeah, there is some early evidence that that is true, particularly in England. And there's a piece of work ongoing in one of these evening calls with the other clinical advisors. We set off a piece of work that will hopefully report quite quickly about what that might be. The numbers are certainly disproportionate. The, the instant instinct is that it probably reflects the demographic of our health and social care workers, which are particularly in the south of England, more black and ethnic minority numbers than they are in the general population. But boy, do we need to be sure that that's why. So, so we absolutely have to check that out. And I know the chief nurse in England in particular was very concerned about it. So there's work ongoing. There's no, there's no obvious reason why the coronavirus would do that. There's not, there's not a scientific reason why the coronavirus would do that, but it could be numbers just within that specific demographic, if you think particularly of those who are employed in these roles in London and the southeast. Um, I mean, how are you coping with all this? Are you sort of thrust into the, into the spotlight all of a sudden? You seem to be coping with it all very well. And I suppose a lot of people are just adjusting to a new reality. There's uh, the sense that this is global and we're all having to do our bit, but... For you personally, how strange does this feel? It, it, feels, it feels strange. A number of things feel strange. The, 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 responsi- the overwhelming responsibility of it is the hardest mm. thing. So it, to, to be the, one of the team who are advising the decision makers on, on how to react and when to react feels overwhelmingly responsible. The... I also have a little bit of relief that I'm not that actual decision maker because the first minister and the first ministers and prime minister of this country and and every country, politics aside, whether you're running Italy or Luxembourg, I mean, would you want to be in that seat right now? These are are hard, hard choices and decisions to make for your economy, for the health of your population. I, I I do like having a purpose so it, it does feel as though my, my, my career, if you can even call it that, from, from dentistry to surgery to public health to quality has led me to a point where I might have some knowledge that would help the country. So that, so that, feels, like, that feels like a good thing. It's not perfect and I'll make mistakes. I've made mistakes and others will make mistakes around me. But that feels like a good thing to do. And I, I've also got balance, Matt. I, I'm not, I've got a, a, an assertive... A wife who keeps my feet firmly on the ground. I've got a, a younger sister who thinks it's all, frankly, quite ridiculous that I'm on the telly, and a mum who loves seeing me on the telly and then tells me my hair needs cut. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've got a set of people around me who are who are pretty balanced and and helping. And I I sleep well. I eat three meals a day, and I run five k every day. And as long as I can do those three things, I can pretty much work till I drop. Just don't visit your second home if you have one. I, ha- I have not got one, so that, that, risk is, that risk is removed. I mean, does that, the, the pressure, you know, you saw what happened to Carol Calderwood, is that, do you feel that weight of responsibility that you have to be seen to be taking your own advice? Yeah, I, I do feel that responsibility, and I, 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 but principally, I, I think it's true because it protects the population. I, the, 
the first lesson you get when you go to epidemiology school, it's a bit dry, but when you, when you sit down at the Harvard School of Public Health and get lecture number one, which is what I did, the man stood up at the front and it was called Epidemiology 101. And the first thing he teaches you is a man called Jeffrey Rose. And Jeffrey Rose is, a, is an icon of public health. And Jeffrey Rose talked about the difference between individual health and population health. And the simplest way of describing it is if you, you take your asthma inhaler today, yes. that, doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. That, all, that only helps you. And that's yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. But if you make population health choices, so you staying at home today helps me. Now, yeah. individuals going out to the park and sunbathing by themselves, socially distancing, that you think, I mean, really? Can we not? Can you not do that? No, you can't do that. Because if everybody does that, people die. And that's the difference between the asthma inhaler individual health to the population measures that you have to do so the population is protected. And that's what Jeffrey Rose taught a century ago. And every public health professional learns in their first lecture. And it feels now as though we're seeing that play out in the, in the population at large. We are, but the, I mean, it, you know, the behaviour of our fellow citizens is something that will baffle and annoy every human being, you know, until, as long as the human species exists. But I find it incredible that there is a, a certain amount of pressure from certain elements of the public putting on politicians in Scotland and the UK and everywhere saying, well, come on now, we've got to be allowed out sooner or later. I mean, does it feel that that is a growing pressure? So I, I get I get abuse from both ends. <laughs> I get I get as much abuse from those who think we didn't lock down enough, to those who say we haven't we we should let everybody out and and just get on with it. I the I think if I'm getting abuse from both ends, probably we're we're doing something about right. That these decisions are not straightforward, not remotely. And and anybody who wants the job, frankly, they can have it. So, so these choices are really difficult. They're difficult to advise about and they're difficult to choose. And, and I think we have, we have a set of politicians just now, I think this probably be true of, of most countries, a set of politicians who want to do their best for the people that they serve. Now, that you, you, might, you might think that sometimes their motives are not that. My, my experience of this piece of work is that that is what they are trying to do. In, in England, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland and Wales, that they want what's best for the population and we will give them the best advice we can. It would be lovely if we could say, you know what, 15th of May, let's open my doors. Let's open my schools. Let's start Wimbledon. Let, well, but it's, it's impossible. So what so makes you say 15th of May? Is that, is, that inside, is that inside of knowledge? Can we go to Ladbrokes with a fiver I, with that? I did, uh, I did uh, have to delete a tweet the other day that I didn't send. When some somebody had asked me like forty six times, what date will the lockdown be released? And I had actually typed May fifteenth, <laughs> and I had to delete it because I, it clearly wasn't May the fifteenth. But I didn't think they would get the joke. So <laughs> I, I can guarantee they wouldn't have got the joke. I had to be. Uh, I see. I still have a. I still have a button that goes off every so often when I can hear the first minister saying to me, "No, Jason, no, no, no." So. But it's a good. That is a good um, device. It's not a bad protecting. voice to have. Not at all, no. I mean, I mean, that's what must be so hard is that you're having to do a very serious job in very serious times, but you're still a person. You've still got a sense of humour. You still need to find a way to look on the bright side and in a way find, help the public to look on the bright side. Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that comes across, I hope, in some of the, some of the media for, that some of us have done, that, that I, 
when when we're talking about grief and uh, mortality and people talking to their families about difficult situations, I mean that that that's that should be serious. So that that's hard. But I've 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 become a bit of a regular on a program in Scotland that you you may know on a Saturday afternoon called Off the Ball, which yes, is a, I know it well, yeah, the a, football a show, sport, a sports radio program, and there's no sports, so they're looking for something to do. So they have the professor on once a week, and I take questions from the viewers. And those questions are about which team should we give the virus to first, etc., <laughs> etc. Et so, so I think I think you you of all people, Matt, w- will know the power of the power of humour within da- even dark times like this. I mean, we're we are all human beings. We have family. We have we have our own layer of of uh, worry and concern for my parents, for for your family, but equally. There's a there's a level of humanity that that we have to show inside that, and I I try to get that balance right. Some people think I get it wrong, but I, I am I'm I'm doing my best within those within those circumstances, just like you are. Uh, you're you're obviously uh, kind of got a dual role. You're, you're you're informing you're giving the high level advice to the politicians that is informing the strategy for coping with all this. You are also beca- you know you become a public face yourself as well i mean when you're sat there recording the tv adverts did you ever think you'd be doing that sort of thing i never thought i'd be doing that i've got i've got a photograph when we were still when we were doing initial tv ads uh, that somebody took a behind the scenes picture of me getting when when the makeup artists were still allowed to to come near you with before social distancing and it honestly feels like a completely different world i mean and then and then I, i was sitting watching the one show the other it was between reporting scotland and the one show and my, my, my advert comes on as a public health information. Pro- I mean, it's preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. <laughs> a 51-year-old guy from, from, from Lanarkshire, and I'm, I'm in a TV ad on a telly. I mean, but if, if that communication, if, if my communication at some level helps people to stay at home, helps somebody get the support they need from Age Scotland, helps somebody know the helpline number, so they can get their shopping or they can go and see their, their mum to help her at end of life care, then it's a small price to pay to get a little bit of abuse on social media. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, I'm not going to send any people your way. I'm sure that the vast majority of people who listen to this will, will only send you love and respect. And, well, that's kind. And indeed, thanks for the, for the phenomenal work you're doing. I just think so many people realise how reliant we are. I mean, not, I think most sensible people realise we're reliant on experts and public servants a lot of the time. But a period like this really makes the public realise, particularly in countries like ours where we have, as you say, such advanced health services, just how lucky we are to have people like you keeping us safe. That's very kind of you, Matt. There are, there are people working a lot harder than me, which we talked about right at the very beginning, that my pals who text me and, and talk to me throughout the day, the, the guy who runs the intensive care unit at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, for instance, telling me that it's really busy, his staff are working really hard. They've got the right kit. They know what to do. But it's it's even with all that resource and the, the high-performing health system, that is a hard shift. These masks that you see people wearing, the, the real respiratory masks, yeah. I wore them during the HIV epidemic in the, in the late 90s when we didn't really know what HIV was. They bruise your face. They literally bruise your face. Because they're so tight. Because they're so tight. So you get oh pressure ulcers on your face. So working an eight-hour shift in an intensive care unit is not fun. It's not good fun. So, so people, people are genuinely putting themselves in harm's way to help, to help this uh, 
this, the reaction to this virus around the world. And then others are working in ASDA and Morrison's and helping us keep our food supply ongoing and the energy supply. And the, the, so there, are, there are heroes all over, all over this game. And I, I'm, I'm trying at some level to give the best advice I can and then share, share that with the public as best I can. I always forgot to ask you this, but obviously Boris Johnson's thankfully come out of intensive care. Yeah. Um, just in terms of him, this sense of this very viral load, this idea that you're basically as ill as the amount of the virus that you're exposed to. Can we deduce from how serious his situation was, he must have been exposed to quite a lot of it? You can't. The science doesn't teach us that yet. What you can deduce from that group of individuals who have all now had the virus is that he was, at some level, the unlucky one in that group. Right. So if you look at the percentages of, of who gets very ill, so the, there are a lot of people in that group that would appear to have caught the virus. It, 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 I don't know who started or where it came from, but it, it looks as though that virus was in that group of individuals, like it could have been in any other group of individuals. And, and he, he was at the extreme end. I don't know his medical history. I don't know his pre-existing conditions or if he's just been unfortunate. And, and that's, that's a lesson for all of us, that even if you think you will do well because you're 32, you run marathons and you'll shake it off, you, you may well, but mm. the 74-year-old who you met at dinner or your, your house party, they may not fare so well. So, so the Prime Minister's story, I think, is encouraging, of course, that he's well. His celebration of the National Health Service, I thought, was very appropriate. His, his singling out of some nursing staff, I think, was, was really, really good. And the, the heroes inside that story are, of course, them and all of the support network around them. We did a piece of work once in intensive care. And to move from a ward to an intensive care unit takes 5,000 steps of, uh, of the doctor and nurse, the uh, engineering, the tying up to machine, whatever you have to do. So it's an enormously complex undertaking to get him the treatment he required inside that intensive care unit. And he's, he's absolutely right to celebrate that. Just such a relief. Uh, you know, the thought of him not coming out of there, I just think would have been just so grim for everyone. It would. So, so a number of world leaders, uh, the, Iran has disappeared from the, from the schedule a little bit. We don't know entirely yes. what's happening there. But if you remember at the beginning of this, there was about four cabinet members who, yeah. who were sick in Iran. World, world leaders are not, this, this virus is no respecter of, of what you do for a living or what age you are or what class you are. Let's try and end on a uh, positive note, which I really, you know, I say that without being flippant or glib about yeah. the situation that people listening to this might find themselves in. But in a year's time, in April 2021, by that point, do you think life will have broadly returned to normal? I'm not sure it'll have returned to normal because I'm hoping that it will be better than it was. I, I don't say that lightly. I, I, I genuinely think we're going to learn some things from this that, that will be good for our society. Let's, let's remember people are suffering, people are dying. There is no good from that, none. Mm. However, there are things within the health service that are going to be better. People are getting the care they need closer to home now than they were. We're introducing video conferencing for GP appointments. That seems to me like a good thing. I don't think we'll roll back from that. Yeah. And I also think that some of the community response, the rainbows in the windows, the 
clap for carers on a Thursday night. The, the, the ability to help our neighbours. I mean, my neighbours have all put cards through each other's doors with their mobile phone numbers on them. That, we didn't do that before the pandemic. Yeah. So, so I, I think there will be some things in our society that are better. We will unfortunately have lost some of the members of our society. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't ever forget that. And that is not a price worth paying at any level. But should we come out of this in, a, in, a, in as enthusiastic and an optimistic way as we can, then of course we should. And I think you're right. I think by next April, you and I can talk again, if not before. <laughs> then, and, we, and we can look back on what went well and what was challenging and, and look forward to a, to a hopeful future. I genuinely believe that. Oh, that is, that is very good to hear. Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Not at all. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. That's been great. Thank you. There you go, Jason Leach. Absolutely superb. What a phenomenal bloke. And and just, I felt so reassured after listening to that. Not about the virus, that it's not serious or anything, but just that there are, and it's not that I didn't appreciate this beforehand, but isn't it amazing to live in a world where people like Jason dedicate their careers to the public good, to understanding these things and how to combat them. But also with just, I, I mean, there's so many things in the interview that, I think will stay with me, but that idea of balancing harms, that whatever measure you take, there are consequences to that, that are negative for some people, and it's about balancing those priorities so delicately, uh, and constantly keeping them under review, but just, i uh, just reassured in every way, um, but mainly, I think, on the whole, that there are amazing people out there, there are fantastic people out there, we've to Rosanna Allen Khan, who's obviously been out on the front line, and there are people advising the politicians steering this global response who've made it their lives work to prepare for a moment like this which is absolutely wonderful uh, email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any reflections you have from any of these guests any suggestions for guests are always welcome and let me know where you listen Nina Simpson got in touch listening in Plymouth what I would give to be in Plymouth uh, during a time like this but I suppose given that wherever you are in the world really should be inside um Oh, that'd still be nice to be inside in Plymouth, wouldn't it? So there you go. I suppose, in a way, everyone emailing the show, on the whole, is going to be saying, I'm listening indoors, but um, let me know where in the world you are when you're listening indoors. Thank you for downloading this. Uh, I hope, even though we are discussing coronavirus and some of these episodes, and not all of the guests will be uh, around the crisis, um, that the information is helpful and reassuring and doesn't compound any anxieties uh, that you have around it. So stay well, stay safe, wash your hands, follow the advice. I'll see you soon. (laughs) 